everybody, and welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I have a question, then I go on all sorts of tangents while looking for the answer to that question, and then uh, I'll tell all the best parts uh, to you. Perfect. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. Welcome back, everybody, and uh, as you can see, I'm going to talk about something odd, probably. The like history. three or five or seven. God. Oh. Groan. Loudly. <laughs> I uh, I think it's odd because most people probably wouldn't think to talk for an hour about history of hygiene, let alone decide that it's part one right. of a multi-part series about history of hygiene. But I think this all kind of started because I've been curious more and more about, like, what is the daily life of people, other people, okay. like, you know? And so a lot of that, of course, involves in the past, like... Okay, I know things about the past, but what, like, did a normal person just, like, do every day? How'd they go to the bathroom? Comes up. How'd they bathe? How did they, you know, a lot of hygiene stuff comes up. Um, So I think I'm planning on, so this one's, like, soap and some hand-washing stuff. Okay. Mainly. And then I was thinking maybe I'll do another one on beauty products, like, perfumes and makeups and whatever. Yeah. And then maybe another one on, you know, the less savory elements of toileting, bathing yourself. Okay. Because um, I'm curious about how, again, like different cultures handle things differently from each other or whatever. Soap is not one of those things. Soap, there's a few different cultures that did things differently, but soap doesn't have that much variance over culture as it does over time. So, okay. yeah. So this one's just- mostly history then. Not necessarily geography. Ooh. Not, no, no geography. Well, very, very little geography. I think we're going to talk about where Castile is in Spain. But anyways. yeah. Let's do that. You're so excited anytime anything about Europe comes up. I know. Because you played that game that you like. Yeah. Uh, And it was very interesting and helped me get into European geography and history. You can probably say the name of the game now. I don't remember it. That's the only reason I Yeah. Europa Universalis 4. I was worried about pronouncing it wrong. What? Universalsis? Universalsis? You could just call it EU4, and uh, that's probably good. Perfect. Okay. Yeah. Not geography. History, yes. And chemistry, yes. Mm, Even better. I know, right? I thought that that you would enjoy that. I, I, I will. So, how about you teach me something? All right. I want to start with one of those questions that seems dumb. Sure. What is soap? Because mm. it real. I mean, it's one of those things that everyone knows what soap is. It's a thing that cleans something. Duh. Um, right. Well, okay. Like, it's one of those things where it seems like a dumb question until you're like, okay, but really? Yeah. Could you define it or like? Y- yes, what but makes I will let you soap? get there. <laughs> oh, you can define soap. Uh, at least some elements of it. Yeah. Should I let you define it first, or tell you the FDA's definition of soap? Mm. I think the only thing that I will put in there is the word emulsifier agent. Not quite. And then leave it there. Okay, well, it's not quite the right word. Okay. In this case. There's Interesting. A, there's a slightly different word we'll be using. But the FDA, uh, the FDA defines soap as a product in which the non-volatile portion consists principally of an alkali salt of fatty acids. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, there... Well, I'll probably end up explaining almost all of those words, except for I'm not going to talk about what non-volatile means. Um, 
Why not? I just didn't include it. It's already 15 pages long. Okay. Well, non-volatile, meaning that it doesn't really react with much. Great. Done. Um, I'll talk about the rest of the stuff. Um, And there's similar basic properties, but obviously differences between soaps. Um, To be regulated as soap, the product must be composed mainly of, like, like it said, alkali salts of fatty acids, which is the material you get if you combine fats or oils with an alkali. Mm-hmm. I'm going to define alkali later. Don't Great. you worry. Um, alkali salts are usually like they're hydroxides, something that has hydroxide on the end. Um, and it's got an alkali metal or an alkaline earth metal. So like something from the first or second column in the periodic table. Yep. So if we're not hydrogen, not hydrogen. No. And then got hydroxide on the end. So what you're mainly going to see um, in soap are sodium hydroxides and potassium hydroxides. I would assume some small percentage, or small percentage of like lithium hydroxide or something like that. No one really talks about that. Maybe calcium. Yeah. Okay. But in general, we're talking about things that you can get from burning stuff in nature. Makes sense. Usually. Yeah. <laughs> um, so by the regulation standards of the FDA... Uh, the alkali salt of the fatty acid has to be the only cleaning material. If there's anything else in there designed to clean something, then it's a beauty or cosmetic product, not a soap anymore. Oh, cool. Um, if it's marketed as containing any moisturizing or deodorizing properties, now it's a beauty or cosmetic product. Okay. Um, if it's marketed to treat disease, kill germs, or treat skin conditions at all, like acne or eczema, now it's a drug. Like a medical ointment or something. Yes. Um, so there's a lot of products that use soap on their labels, but they're not actually recognized as soap. Sure. At least by the FDA, and I'm assuming similar organizations in other countries. So, um, yeah, it's actually, you know, there is specific criteria that makes something a soap. Uh, later, at the, the very end, there's a portion about what a detergent is versus a soap, because those are different okay. things. Yeah, I could see them being relatively... Similar. They have a lot of chemical similarities. I will tell you at the end. Great. I will wait to the end. chemical dissimilarity that makes them different. Sure. Um, okay. So now moving on to the next question of how does soap work. I learned about this when I, and to this day I still remember learning about it on Magic School Bus. Great. It was one of my favorite episodes is when they learned how soap works. And I, I just think it was like they explained it really well. I hope I explained it. I hope that so. Well. Otherwise, you'll be letting all of Magic School Bus down. At an adult standard, I'm going to bump up the language okay. a little bit. Okay, so you have, well, we'll start with the kid. You've heard the saying, oil and water don't mix. I have right? heard that saying. Yeah. That's cause I the, wonder how you would get them to mix. <laughs> that's because the don't mix. You get separate layers when you've got water and oil, right? Yeah. Um, so, a little plug for hand washing here. It is important that you use soap when you wash your hands. You must use the soap if you want something to happen. Um, because when those things that make your hands dirty, you know, dirt, germs, get yep. on your hands, um, they mix with the oil that your skin produces. So now all of a sudden they're dissolved in oil. Right. And water will not mix with that. It won't rinse off any of the oily germs and dirt. So you need uh, you need soap. Because soap is, here's the word, a surfactant. Mm-hmm. So it makes it a bridge. It bridges the gap between oil and water. 
Um, so how it does this. More specifically, soap molecules have the alkali salt we talked about on yep. one end and the, uh, the fatty acid yep. on the other end. So the salt is a polar molecule. Um, and it is hydrophilic, like water. It's attracted to water. The fatty acid is a nonpolar molecule, which makes it hydrophobic. Mm -hmm. Uh, repelled by water, which kind of necessarily means it's attracted to fats. Yeah. Um, it's kind of one or the other with molecules. Mostly, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, pro tip when you're cleaning anything, if it's oily or fatty, you need Soap. Soap, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So when you mix soap into water, the soap molecules are going to arrange themselves in little clusters called micelles. And what happens is the water-loving part of the soap is kind of like a, think of it like the head of the molecule. And it's got tails. The tails are the fatty acid part that you want to get away from the water. Yeah. So they form these little balls, these little round bubbles with all the heads in a circle on the outside and all the tails pointed towards the middle. And in these little compartments inside is where the micelles can trap fats uh, and like the nonpolar molecules inside of them. Um, so I keep saying polar and nonpolar. And I think that that would probably do with a little breakdown. I don't know if everyone's completely familiar with those terms. Um, in the most basic language, molecules have one end that has a positive charge and another end that has a more negative charge. Correct. Um, they're usually asymmetrical molecules. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, nonpolar molecules are symmetrical and they don't have that charge difference at no. opposite ends. So as I understand it, Polar and non-polar molecules result from how well they share their electrons. Yeah, typically. So if a substance is polar, it's because it doesn't share very equally. One thing in the molecule is pulling the electrons to a certain side, more negative charge on that side. Yeah. It's a charge difference, but a non-polar molecule would be sharing its electrons very equally distributed across the molecule. Yeah, and, and oftentimes there has to do with the actual symmetry of bonding within those molecules. So something like oxygen, which bonds, uh, like, typically only forms two bonds, but at an angle, leaves electron density on one side of the oxygen molecule. And when you have stuff like carbon, which bonds in four directions and it's all equal in all directions, you typically end up with nonpolar bonds across chains, which is why these types of molecules typically have like carbon chains and then something else on the other side. You're talking about a salt, which makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, okay. When you wash your hands, the salt forms something like a molecular bridge between the water and those oily uh, dirt and germs. Um, soap can also actually kind of link up with the fatty membranes on the outside of some bacteria and uh, viruses and kind of lift them off and break apart their membranes. Mm -hmm. So it's another advantage to soap. Um, but anyways, the oily dirt and germs gets kind of integrated into those micelles, trapped in the, the micelles, and then the water washes them off. And the micelles have the advantage of they kind of trap that bacteria or whatever. Like they can't go anywhere once it's been washed off. Right. Um, so it's just all around net positives here. 
when you wash your hands with soap. <laughs> My next question was, how is soap made? I mean, in general, I pretty much remembered that it had fat in it. And mm-hmm. I didn't really remember anything else, so I didn't really know how it was made. Um, it's called saponification, the soap making process. And it's here. This is where the real chemistry starts for you. It is a process of converting esters into soaps and alcohols by combining fats or oils with an aqueous alkali. In soap, it's usually lye. Lye is our aqueous alkali. Right. Basically, liquid base. Yeah. <laughs> liquid base. Okay. So, vegetable oils and animal fats are the traditional materials that are saponified. Um, they call their triglycerides, which is a type of triester. Uh, anyways, they are mixtures that you derive from multiple fatty acids, diverse fatty acids. So more than one type. Okay. More than one type is the important part here. Um, because there's two different methods depending on if there's more than one type of fatty acid or not. Okay. Okay. So triglycerides can be converted to soap with a one or two step process. In the one step process, which is like the traditional way to do it. You treat the triglyceride with a strong base, like the lye. Um, it cleaves the ester bond. I know you're nodding. I hope I'm not losing. Cleaves, you know, breaks. Yep. Breaks the bond. Um, which releases fatty acid salts and glycerol. So you basically end up with soap and a byproduct is uh, glycerol. It's also actually how you produce glycerol on purpose. Not just as a byproduct. When they're trying to make glycerol, they do it this way, too. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so, in actually, in some soap making, they leave the glycerol in the soap. Oh. Yeah. Why not? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Um, so, you could also precipitate the soap by salting it out with sodium chloride. That would be a more or a less common way of doing things. Um, so, the other main method of saponification is to react fatty acids with a base and it's a neutralization reaction with carboxylic acid. So when you're doing that method, you are trying to use one single type of fatty acid, which is going to lead you to more like, uh, state what, what's the right word? Um, the product is more like trustworthy. Like you're doing it this way and you're making it to specific yeah. specifications for, you know, industry. I'm assuming that you, you need could, to have it predictable. You, yeah. You can control the reaction much more finely. You only have one um, product. You have a, a very similar set of. Right. Like you do it this way when you need an exact product. Yeah. And you do it the other way when you just need like soap that can be off by a few percentage points of something you know what i mean so this is more for like special engineering purposes or whatever like when it needs to have certain properties it needs to be predictable every time you know okay um by the way the most common soap is sodium stearate which is the sodium salt of the fatty acid called stearic acid um tallow by the way which we're going to talk about later it's basically beef oil though Mm -hmm. Uh, is very high in stearic acid. Okay. Yeah. That so, makes sense because beef steers stearic acid. It's not spelled like that. But it is in my mind. S T E A R. I don't think that's where that was derived, but <laughs> I think that it's lovely to think that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I actually did make sure that wasn't the case. Mm. I just wanted to make sure because I definitely had the same thought. I was like, stearic acid. But I was pretty sure it wasn't. Mm, too bad. They missed an opportunity there. <laughs> so, yeah. Chemists are not nearly as much fun when they name things as biologists are. No. Biologists not love nearly. to use jokes. And the chemists are like, we have a specific naming standard. Uh, I like, was going to say, yeah. Like nerds. Yeah. Um, okay, so now we'll do the history of soap, though. Okay. Yay. History of so, cleaning products. Yeah. Take it away. Okay, so soap has been around for somewhere near 5,000 years. Okay. Probably. Um, two kind of possible ways of originating that are the most likely at this point. Um, one is a byproduct of cooking meat, right? You're yeah. roasting meat over the fire. Fat drips down into the ashes, gets all cooked, and turns out that stuff is great at cleaning. Um and I don't know if this is a different explanation or maybe um, an extension of this explanation, but some lots of scholars now think that humans cleaned with wet ash, especially their butchering tools. Okay. So kind of extension of that, maybe like they were doing their cookout and accidentally got some dirty ash on their tools. And when they wiped it off, they're like, oh, that was great. Yeah. And then found this method of cleaning, perhaps. Okay. But yeah, cleaning with wet ash has been a thing for longer than soap has, we think. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so the Egyptians, Phoenicians, and Romans, well, and Greeks, by extension, yeah. <laughs> um, used kind of variations of soap made from animal fats and vegetable oils. Um, initially, and, you know, actually, typically, the alkali components um, came from ash. Yeah. The word Alkali is an Arabic word. Okay. Comes from alkali, which means from ashes. Cool. Didn't That's know where that. we get the word alkali from. Um, so wood is the natural, like usual source of the ashes. Other yeah. plants were burned, of course. Um, definitely other plants were burned, but usually tree wood. The most important ingredients that we get from that are the sodium and potassium, like I was kind of saying before. Um, so example, the wood, you know, contains potassium ions. When combustion happens, combustion means to add oxygen to mm -hmm. the situation. So you're going to get some potassium oxide in the ashes. Totally. K2O, if you care. Mm -hmm. um, then you soak the ashes in water. Right. And yeah, so you're adding water and you're going to end up with potassium hydroxide. Yep. Basically. And that water is lye. Even though lye is not a specific thing, it can be made from sodium hydroxide as well. Lye is more of a uh, yeah, I thought class it was, of things. I thought lye was basically just like a like an alkali solution. I guess I thought it, it was naturally forming. I guess that must be from ash and yeah, stuff like that. yeah. Usually, it's it's pretty much generally just potassium hydroxide or sodium hydroxide. I thought you could lye get is. lye from water dripping over like limestone too. Is that inaccurate? Does it end up making potassium hydroxide or sodium hydroxide? I think so. I think the. <laughs> then, I think that's why. Okay, and, then, and I might be wrong about that, but I thought that that was the other natural source of lye. I mean, maybe as long as it ends up being sodium hydroxide or potassium yep. hydroxide in there, then I think we're talking about the same thing. Um, this is a fun fact. I don't know if anyone else will find it fun, but I, I'm not sure if you've heard the term potash before. Sure have. Okay, 
Generally, it refers to all manufactured water-soluble potassium compounds because they were first derived from ashes soaked in a pot. Okay. Potash. Yeah. I'll, I'll give that one medium fun on yeah. the fun fact scale. When they first discovered potassium in 1808, they named it after potash. Oh, which so is the why fun factor just potassium. went up higher. Yeah, Yay! that's good. <laughs> I have to do it. Um, so the first documented use of soap um, is from a cuneiform tablet found in a city called Gersu, which was an ancient Sumerian city. Makes sense. I probably said it wrong. According to um, an archaeologist, the tablet was written about 4,500 years ago, and it's about washing and dyeing wool. So to properly dye the wool, the weaver has to remove the lanolin fat. So those are oil. Like, I don't know if you've ever touched a sheepskin, but it can be mm, super... So. Uh, yes, really, I have. Really, at yeah. the stampede, you've yeah, never touched I certainly sheep. have, yeah. They're very oily. Those natural oils protect the wool, but also protect it from things like dye, right? So mm. they got to get those cleared off first. Um, and that's much more easily accomplished with soap. Sure. Um, even today... Weavers will wash the the wool in soapy water first to remove the lanolin. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then because there's no mention of soap for the whole first millennia of Mesopotamian writing, most scholars think that soap must have been discovered pretty close to this first mention in the tablets 4,500 years ago. It's not okay. a for sure thing or anything, but they're like, there's literally nothing. And you've been writing for a thousand years. I feel like... It would be so important to an ancient culture that's, you know, using textiles to do all these different things. There's no way it just, like, wouldn't have come up. That's kind of what they're they're going with. Okay. So that's where we're getting um, the idea of about 5,000 years. Because a new er discovery um, was these, like, clay cylinders that had a soap-like material inside of them. And then there's an inscription on the cylinders and we think it says fats boiled with ashes. And they dated the cylinders to around 2800 BC. So that's, yeah, yeah. 5,000 years ago. Okay. So, yeah. Who knows? It's probably a little older than that, but we never know without the, you know, written proof. Yeah. Um, in the southern Levant region, the ashes from the barilla plants and a plant called Anabasis were used to make soap. They burnt those. Uh, they used olive oil instead of animal lard throughout the Levant. They boiled it in a copper cauldron for a few days, and then they would stir in the alkali ashes and some quicklime, so that's calcium oxide. Yeah. And then they, so it was constantly stirred. Um, and if you used lard, they would constantly stir it and keep it at a lower temperature. And then once it thickened, they put it in these molds. They left it to harden for a few weeks and then cut it into smaller little soap bars. Totally makes sense. Yeah, and they'd add uh, aromatic herbs and that kind of lovely thing, like uh, yarrow leaves, lavender, germander, which I don't know what that is. Maybe uh, it's germander. I'm not sure. I don't know, but it's a herb or flower type thing. Um, the ancient Egyptians, we do have records that they bathed regularly. And uh, the Ebers Papyrus, which is like a really famous medical document from 1500 BCE, uh, in the Egyptian area, describes combining animal and vegetable oils with alkaline salts to form a soap-like material, and they said to use that for treating skin diseases and for washing. Per yeah, that sounds exactly like soap. Yeah. So now we're going to jump to the Roman Empire. Let's do it. Um, Because we could never miss a chance to talk about Pliny the Elder. 
yeah, that would just be a wasted episode. Right. And this isn't about, well, my, uh, my first paragraph about him is not about medical treatment, so he mm. might not be wrong about everything. Okay. Um. So, Pliny the Elder, Roman naturalist and writer of the first encyclopedia of natural history. He wrote that soap is, quote, an invention of the Gauls. The Gaul people, according to him, invented soap. We know that's not true, but... <laughs> oh, okay. Well, then he was wrong in that case. So, the word sapo, which is Latin for soap, that's where we get saponification from. Great. Um, first appears in this book, in Natural History. That's where you first get that word. It was likely borrowed from an earlier Germanic language, and it comes from the same root as the Latin word sebum, which was their word for tallow. Okay. Or fact. So, makes sense. Um, tallow is probably going to keep coming up, so yeah. I, I've looked into totally. it. Yeah. I've looked into it. It is rendered beef or mutton fat. And I kept being like, okay, but how do you render it? I, I, I was trying to do a real, real deep look, investigation into this. Um, it, I don't know. Hmm. It did never really describe how you render beef yeah, I, or I don't know. mutton fat. Um, what I could figure out is it, it turns into triglycerides. Triglycerides are oil. Or mm-hmm. liquid fats. So you're getting beef oil or sheep oil, but beef tallow is much, 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 much more popular. Yeah. So you're getting beef oil. That's what it is. Um, so natural history says soap is, quote, made from tallow and ashes, the best from beechwood ash and goat fat, and exists in two forms, solid and liquid. Among the Germans, who were the Gauls in this case, mm-hmm. uh, both are used more by men than by women. Oh. It was, Yeah. Apparently to make their hair shiny and even reddish. Oh. I was with you on the shiny part. The yeah, apparently the Pliny, reddish part Pliny is... thinks they use... Well, Pliny doesn't necessarily think it. Pliny wrote that at least someone thought they used their soap to make their hair more reddish. Okay. Um, here's where we get to the medical treatments. Let's do it. Pliny mentioned using soap to treat scrofulous sores, which... Almost immediately, you can you can understand that it probably means it doesn't treat that thing if Pliny says it does. But, I guess so. Right. Don't worry. Your face looks confused like I wouldn't have looked up what scrofulous sores yeah. were. Yeah. I mean, they sound painful. Um, I looked them up. Don't worry. So it's also called scrofula. It's also called the- mycobacterial cervical lymphadenitis. Mm. It seems to be a complication of tuberculosis. Oh. It's also called, historically, not these days, King's Evil. Oh. So I looked up because I was like, what? Why is yeah. it called King's Evil? And it's something like because the king's touch is thought to have been able to cure people that had these like gross sores from tuberculosis. Oh. I, I don't, I don't know. Obviously he couldn't well, cure them by touching them. Unless but. he had lots of soap. On his hands? You mean antibiotics? It's too close, I don't... No, I'm just trying to help Pliny out here. Oh, right. We, we don't have to help Pliny. Okay. <laughs> oh, wait, another side note about scrofula. Hippocrates. Hippocrates. Hippocrates? Wow. I was going to say Hippocratic, and then I turned... Oh, yeah. My apologies, because I did. Hippocrates is how I meant to say that. We'll go with that. He thought scrofula was caused by an imbalance of the humors. Well, yeah. Which is not surprising at the time. But scrofula specifically meant you were too phlegmatic. Hmm. See, I don't remember what each of the humors... Imbalance of phlegm. Phlegm. Yeah, phlegmatic, phlegm. 
that makes sense. I just couldn't remember each of them. How dare you? I know. It was like our second episode. I think. Yeah, probably pretty close. Yeah. Um, so, the Romans actually avoided washing with soap before this. Oh. Um, they did have soap. The Greeks and Romans cleaned their pots and dishes and textiles and all that stuff with soap. Okay. But, um, they didn't rub it on themselves. They preferred, so they do like the baths where they don't use soap. And then they smeared themselves with scented oils, which you probably knew. Um, so at least that's got that oily component. But then they take these like metal or reed scraper things called a strigil. And use them like a squeegee and mm-hmm. get the oil off to get all the... So they're not the least clean people. No, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, the the oil that they would put on would, you know, bind with or trap. Yeah, it just wouldn't come the... off their body that well. Not even as, if not you squeegee well, yeah. it. But anyways, when these new kind of milder soaps came from the Gauls around 58 BCE is when the Romans started to adopt them. Um, in the 2nd century CE, the Roman physician Galen described soap making using lye, and he prescribed, well, he's just washing. I prescribed washing to carry away impurities from the body and clothes. Perfect. Yeah. So it started to get more common to use soap for being clean, and Galen also said the best soaps were Germanic. Hmm. But the soaps from Gaul were the second best. So I guess by the 2nd century AD, we are separating those peoples now. Okay. 120 years after Pliny, so yeah, they've changed their minds by now. So I'm just going to mention ancient Asian countries because they were kind of an just, exception to just the like a shout soap out. thing. You're yeah. say the country name and then move N- on. No, I think I wrote more than that. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> so there are the countries I'm kind of talking about that just didn't do the whole, they just didn't really do soap. Okay. Soap wasn't a thing until Western contact. Um. The Chinese made a detergent similar to soap from the seeds of Gladitia sinensis, which is also called edible Chinese honey locust. Oh. It's a plant, not an insect. Honey locust. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, Another traditional detergent they use was a mixture of pig pancreas and plant ash called zhuyizi. And that's terrible pronunciation. There's too many Zs in that word. Um, true soap that we are thinking of with animal fats didn't come into China until the modern time. They would use more like ointments and creams, type of detergent things. Um, Japan yep. also didn't have soap like we think of soap. Um, the Western style soap with animal fat was only made in Japan for the first time in 1870. Wow. Uh, prior to the beginning of the modern era, bathing was like really important in Japanese society mm-hmm. um, for lots of reasons. Social regions, religious, recreational, ritual. Like, they relaxed in the bath, but none of those reasons was cleaning themselves. Okay. That's not what the bath was for. You were supposed to clean yourself before you got in the bath. Right. Um, Especially because you're sharing it with other people. Yeah. But, like, yeah, you're supposed to clean yourself first. So, they kind of used abrasion to clean themselves. Okay. Um, There's a, a quote I found that sand does duty for soap. In Japan. So, yeah, just rub your skin with sand to get all that dead skin and all that stuff off and then rinse off with some cold water from a bucket. Yeah, I can see that. Then you can get in your bath. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, the Middle East, they made something called hard toilet soap 
in Middle East for the first time. Oh. I don't know. I tried to look. I don't know. <laughs> they made hard toilet soap with pleasant smell in the Middle East during the Islamic Golden Age. And then soap making kind of became an established industry. They have recipes from soap making as far back as 900 CE, along with a recipe for making glycerin from olive oil. Okay. In Syria, they made soap from olive oil with alkali and with lime, like the calcium version of lime, not the fruit version of lime. Uh, they exported soap, the soap from Syria to other parts of the Muslim world and all over Europe, basically. In the 12th century, uh, there was a document that described the process of soap production, and that's the first place we see that word alkali okay. used. Um, by the 13th century, the manufacture of soap in the Middle East was basically industrialized. They had big centers in places I'm going to say wrong. Nablus, Fez, Damascus, and Aleppo. Um, the, the new vegetable oil-based soaps that they were making were like celebrated for being so mild and pure and they smelled so good because, you know, animal fat did not smell that great in soaps. I could see that, yeah. Yeah. And so it became a really popular luxury item. Amongst the like the uber rich in Europe, uh, Aleppo soap. So there's still like names of soap we still use today. Aleppo soap is one of them. Well, and you said one of the other places was like Fez, like current day Morocco and stuff. I don't know F E S. Is that? Oh, I don't know. I'm thinking one. I think it's F E Z. I know where Damascus and Aleppo is, and I've never heard of the other two. So okay. Um. Anyways, Aleppo soap. So we still use that today, but like I said, Aleppo was one of the centers of soap making. Um, it was a green olive oil-based bar soap they, they would infuse with laurel oil. So they made it in Aleppo in Syria. Mm-hmm. And then it was kind of brought to Europe by the Christian crusaders. Makes, yeah, um, that would make sense. And traders. Yeah. So in medieval Europe, here's what's going on with soap. There was actually like the earliest European soap place was Naples. Okay. There was a soap makers guild in Naples by the late sixth century. Um, so at the time, it was st- under the control of the Eastern Roman Empire, Naples. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I kind of tried to look this up, but didn't find anything right away, and kind of gave up on it. But I was wondering if soap makers guild was like a union. <laughs> I don't really know what. I was assuming it was like a union that would just help protect everybody's interests in the field, but I don't, I don't know exactly what it is. It's okay. a car- is it a cartel? Is it a union? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know how um, to define that. Right. Um, by the 7th century, soap making was pretty established in Italy, Spain, and France, and those countries were the early centers of soap manufacturing in Europe, mostly because they had lots of supplies like oil from olive trees. Yeah. Um, soap is mentioned as being one of the products the stewards of royal estates were supposed to tally, like it was a luxury good. Okay. Um, it's soap making is mentioned in history in medieval European history as women's work, but also as the produce of good workmen. So I don't know. Um, there is this alchemist's manual published sometime between eighth and 10th centuries. Um, CE. And so I'll read a little quote here. Uh, spread well burnt ashes from good logs over woven wicker work and gently pour hot water on them. So it goes through drop by drop. After it is clarified well, let it cook, add enough oil, and stir very well. So that's that's so the process. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it comes from the Mappa Clavicula, which is a little key to everything in Latin. 
it, it says to use olive oil or beef tallow for that one, by the way. Perfect. Right on yeah. track. So in that manual, though, they describe soap not so much as something to clean with, but as an ingredient in spells. Like, I'm pretty sure you know what an alchemist was trying to do, right? Yeah, I mean, traditionally it was convert lead into gold. I mean, in general, make gold but, from things that aren't gold, yeah. right? Like, it's not just Or, lead. I think, in some cases... I thought they were just trying to make gold from anything that wasn't gold. Yeah, or just transmute, in general. One thing to another. Fair enough. So, for example, there's a recipe that says gold solder can be made from making this soap and then mixing it with copper and a dyeing agent called cocothar. I'm going to guarantee you that did not make gold probably not um so in the kingdom of england they didn't start making soap until the 12th century um by the 15th century was when they finally kind of had more of a industrialized soap making so the centers in europe were antwerp castile marseille naples and venice and so you know how I said before there is like specific soaps that we still have like use those yeah. names for those soaps. So one of them is Castile soap, mm-hmm. also called um Habon de Castilla, Castilla probably if I could speak Spanish properly. Um so it was named for Castile, which is in central Spain. Yep. Um and that was kind of the best known. This Castile soap was one of the best known soaps ever in the whole world. It's white olive oil based bar soap. And it just became, like, the thing to have in Europe, among the royals especially. So Castile soap just kind of eventually became, like, any white bar soap made from olive oil. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, Newer European history. Newer, starting in the 15th century. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So in France, by the second half of the 15th century, there is um, a few centers where they made soap, but all in Provence. Yeah. Okay. Toulon, Hayer, and Marseille. Um, and Marseille made the most soap in France, probably the most in Europe. England, it was mostly in London that they made soap. Um, they used, finally started to use vegetable oils instead of animal fats in the 16th century in Europe, but those soaps cost more. Sure. Um, yeah, the, the animal fats definitely were the cheaper option. Uh, so in 1634... Charles I was king of England, and he granted a monopoly in soap production to a newly formed Society of Soap Makers. Ooh, sounds secretive. Well, I just had to laugh at this. So basically the Society of Soap Makers came to King Charles with a ton of testimonials. Hmm, yeah, okay. Okay, so they showed him certificates, so signed testimonials from four countesses, and five viscountesses, and diverse other ladies and gentlewomen of great credit and quality, besides common laundresses and others. Hmm, those others. <laughs> right. Well, and common laundresses. Yeah. Um, they all testified that, quote, the new white soap washeth whiter and sweeter than the old soap. So King Charles was like, done. You can have a monopoly. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, so during the Restoration Era... So, 1665 to 1714 time frame, they introduced a soap tax in England. 
So until mid 1800s when they took this away, soap was a luxury item because they literally put a special soap tax on it to make it more expensive. Um, they actually, so they like took this very, very seriously. There's a law that said soap boilers must manufacture a minimum quantity of one imperial ton each boiling. So the average person couldn't make their own soap. They couldn't have small runs of soap. Right. And okay. there was like revenue officials who locked up soap makers equipment so that it could only be used when they were watching them use it so that they, you couldn't get around any of these rules. Like so, it was like, yeah. you couldn't, so you couldn't make any to undersell the prices and not pay your soap tax. It was a intense. Highly regulated. I don't know why. So finally it was deregulated in 1853 when they took the tax, repealed that tax. Okay. Yeah. Um, until the Industrial Revolution time, so making was kind of small scale and not the greatest production-wise. Um, in 1780, a man named James Keir, or Kyer, maybe, he established a chemical works at Tipton, and he was trying to just make alkali from potash and soda sulfates. And he's like, well, might as well just start making soap so I can use some of my waste products. Um... Which made industrial manufactured bar soaps available, finally, in the late 18th century. Um, and then advertising campaigns in Europe and America started to promote popular awareness that being clean helped you be healthy, even if they didn't know why yet. So soap sales started to go up. Um, but a major step towards this large-scale scope make large scale soap making it's like a tongue twister <laughs> yeah occurred in 1791 when there's a french chemist named nicolas leblanc and he developed a new process of mixing natural oils or fats with caustic soda so that's the sodium hydroxide um that helped the price of soap become more affordable as well um so then there's you know soap powders then there's you know some other things happening in america and then we get someone named william hesketh Lever and his brother James, they bought a small soap works in Warrington in 1886, and they founded what is still one of the largest soap businesses today. It was called Lever Brothers. Yeah. But now it's not called that anymore. No. But Lever's still in the name. Yeah. You know, do you remember what it is? No, but I can still picture it's, the it's logo. Unilever. Unilever. There you go. Yeah. One, probably one of the biggest companies in the whole world, but yeah. Um... The big soap businesses were actually among the first to do, like, large-scale advertising campaigns. So, marketing-wise, they were groundbreaking. Makes sense. Does it? That they would do large marketing and then become groundbreaking? No, I just mean that soap was one of the first industries to start doing Oh, well, it doesn't matter what industry. Somebody just has to think about doing it, and then everybody else follows suit afterwards. Eventually. So, liquid soap. In 1865, William Shepard patented a liquid version of soap. And then in 1898, one B.J. Johnson developed a soap from palm oil and olive oil. So the B.J. Johnson Soap Company introduced this palm olive brand soap. Mm -hmm. And it was really popular, so B.J. Johnson Soap Company decided that their whole company was now called Palm Olive. Mm -hmm. Got shortened a little bit later, but yeah. Palm olive? Doesn't it become pomalo? No, palm olive is like a dish soap, like that you would use at yeah. your sink to do your dishes, like one of those green ones. I just thought that it eventually got called uh, pomalo or something like that, and it's still the brand that's used today. But I must be thinking of something else. 
No, I, I just don't know. I, I feel like I've never paid enough attention. I thought it was still called that, but I don't know. Okay. Maybe you should Google that while we're talking. I don't know if you really... If you really want to know, well, I think um, I heard it under on under the influence. So, but I'll look up. Okay, so in America, the soap industry got started because of bacon and candles. We could say, yeah, and animal fat byproducts and candles. Okay, so lighting and commercial cleansers are commonly linked in the old days because you traditionally make both from animal byproducts, right? Candles. I'm talking about before electricity, Mm -hmm. lighting. So lighting and cleaners go together. You make both those things at once. Makes sense. Um, And then as the United States became more industrialized, people stopped raising their own animals from, you know, slaughtering them, whatever. Now you go to a butcher. So, someone was smart. One William Proctor was a smart dude. Because in 1837, he was a candle maker in Cincinnati. And he decided, I should try to start making some soap and not just candles. Okay. And he formed a company with his partner. Gamble? (laughs) James Gamble. So... Good decision to go away from candles since that was going to become obsolete, you know, with the whole Edison electricity thing in a few decades. Yeah. They would eventually evolve into the world's largest consumer products company, Procter & Gamble. Yeah. So, yeah, again, good job staying alive there, switching your focus from candles to to soap. Otherwise, that wouldn't have happened. Um, One of the first soaps to gain national distribution was Ivory by Procter & Gamble. It was called Ivory. Yeah. Uh, in 1878, they released this soap. It's been a long time. It has. Um, so originally it was introduced as a plain white soap, and it was trying to compete with the Castile soap. But unlike Castile soap, this one was made with animal fat, not olive oil. Um, the name Ivory was chosen from a Bible passage. Hmm. Psalms 45, 8. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia, out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. I don't know. I don't really get it, but I just thought I'd look up the passage when I heard it was named after a Bible passage. That's sure. where it comes from. I don't know why. Cool. Christians. Yeah. Um, so the primary selling point of ivory was that it floated. Oh. And so the company made that into a thing. Like, this is special. So it must be Floats. good. Yeah, yeah, right? Not just that it happens, but it must be good. Um, it's an indicator of purity, they would say. Mm. So then they retrofitted, they, they made a creation myth, like they formally created a creation myth. I know that advertisers do this, but yeah. it's a very old example of it happening. And they kind of said that it was a complete accident. A mixing machine was left on. Someone took an extended lunch break. Extra air accidentally got pumped into our mixture. And they made floating soap. Well, how, aren't we brilliant? Um, in 2004, company archivists actually uncovered an 1863 diary entry by James Gamble that kind of says he, he went in there. He said, I made floating soap today. I think we'll start making all of our stock this way. Like he, he, he did it. <laughs> yeah. Like there was no like accident. He was just like, no, I did this thing and we're going to start doing it. So yeah, you know, apocryphal a little bit, that origin story, but that's good marketing. Yeah, it is. Um, so detergents. I said we'd get to detergents. You did. Um, 
The chemistry of soap manufacturing was pretty much the same until the World Wars started. There was shortages of animal and vegetable fats. Um, and German engineers discovered an al- like alternative way of doing it, which is synthetic detergent, which roughly translates from the Latin to wipe away. Um, detergents don't contain soap. They use enzymes. Okay. So American companies... Um, kind of refined detergents and mixed ingredients to create that same surfactant effect that soap has, allowing, you know, dirt and grease and water to kind of combine at once. And mix, yeah. Yeah. Um, so Procter & Gavel's corporate archivist said the reason to kind of move away from soap was simply that detergents clean better. That was always their motive. Um, not that we ran out of supplies, but whatever. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, but... What I'm trying to say is that the thing that we call soap really isn't soap anymore because most body cleansers are detergents now, not soaps. Okay. Um, They don't form gummy deposits as much. People with hard water especially appreciate that. I don't get really hard water. So that soap scum is not really an issue with detergents. Even if we call them soaps, they're pretty much all detergents. Right. Um, those like Rocky Mountain soap and those companies that are popping up now that make natural soap, those are soaps. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the modern cleaning bars can contain some of the same ingredients as the soap, you know, so like sodium tallowate is used. Yeah. That's yeah. still tallow. That's still, yeah. Um, like lards, sodium palmitate, sodium cocoate. Anyways, not soap though. Is what I'm trying to say. These are detergents. So, I'm going to tell two historical stories to end off Great. the episode. I like stories. And I think everybody else likes stories, too. One is less about soap and more about washing your hands. Okay. And the other is less about soap and more about lambs. But <laughs> we'll get there. Okay. Um. See, I hooked people. Now they're going to stay till the end yeah, of and find course. out what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's how you do it. Okay, so when did we start doing the whole washing our hands regularly thing? Let's go back in time and talk about a man named Semmelweis. So Ignaz Semmelweis was a Hungarian doctor in the mid-1800s, and he specialized in obstetrics. Um, At the time he was practicing, obstetrics was kind of a newer field, at least when it comes to, like, in a hospital delivering babies and men doing it. Because, you know, it was always midwives before that. Like, surgeons were always somewhat around the periphery of the field in case something went wrong. But in general, doctors didn't do this. So doctors now did this. Okay. Okay. So Semmelweis worked at the first obstetrical clinic at Vienna General Hospital. And there was a second obstetrical clinic, too, by the way. This The ordering makes sense. (laughs) So... Types of clinics like this were being developed throughout Europe at the time to encourage patients to come and deliver there and provide care for the child and the pregnant person. Um, Like, this is a very early form of socialized medicine. They didn't charge people. Um, They just wanted to take care of people, yada, yada. Cool. Um, But the two clinics were run by different groups. The first clinic is run by doctors and med students. Uh... The second obstetrical clinic is run by midwives and midwife, midwifery students. Okay. Okay. That's going to be important later. 
Got it. Okay. So, Silvais began to notice there's a difference between the two clinics. He specifically noticed um, a difference in the rate of purpural fever. So, the word purpural refers to the time period after giving birth. Not like the color. Postpartum. Purpural. Not purple. <laughs> I knew you would say that. I knew that was kind. Yeah, good. So, it's a fever in someone who's just given birth. Okay. So, it was a common problem back in these days. Um, after delivery, people didn't understand what was happening yet, and the patient would seem okay for a couple of days, and then they would get, you know, high fevers, chills, stomach pain, abdominal pain. Uh, it was a pretty bad sign because lost patients who got these symptoms died. Like, this was a very Damn. fatal type of yeah thing. And, um, I mean, this, the purpural fever phenomenon goes all the way back to Hippocrates, at least. And he wrote that after delivery, it's a vulnerable time period for the patient. And there was some sort of sickness that could follow. Sometimes that was very bad. That's all we got, though. That's as far as we had gotten with the whole thing. Um, it's actually not called purpural fever, though, until the 1800s. We kind of grouped a bunch of things together in the past. That might not all be the same thing, but. Okay. But we did our kind of best. A postpartum fever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they also called it childbed fever. Anyways, so at this point in history, lots of people are still believing in the miasma form of disease theory, like bad air causes diseases. And there were also people who kind of thought the humoral way as well still at this point. Okay. So that, and, and what I mean by that is not you're too phlegmatic. It was more individual. It was, yes, all 10 of you have the same symptoms. But yours are probably caused because you're sad. And yours are probably caused because you got dressed too slowly. And yours are caused because you're constipated. And yours are caused because you're cold. Like, they would attribute everything had to be individual. Completely mm. individual to that person. Yikes. Um, so, it, I guess what I'm trying to say is we weren't making any progress. No, <laughs> in, that, that's pretty hard issue. to make uniform types of suggestions or treatments or anything like that so what we get right now is kind of this perfect storm so obstetrics is moving into hospitals people are moving into medical facilities to give birth and this is like when doctors are starting to deliver them as opposed to midwives and this is the exact same time that we're really starting to do autopsies all the time because you finally realize that they're not just for learning anatomy, that you can actually look in someone and be like, oh, why did you die? Mm-hmm. Then maybe the next person won't die. Great. Groundbreaking. Awesome. But this is happening at the same time. And they didn't care about being clean because we didn't know about germs yet. Right. You can see where this is going. I can. So back to Semmelweis. He notices the high rate of fever... And the differences, and he actually finds that the first clinic had a purpural fever rate, fever rate between 10 and 18% of patients. Wow. And the second clinic was under 4%. The midwife clinic. Right. You probably already know what's, what's going to happen. I assume so, but, uh, it's interesting that there's that difference in the percentage, percents. Wow. There's a reason why, right? Anyways, but it got so bad that, like, okay. So they just admitted they took turns. Like, you show up, you go to number one. Next person show up, go to number two clinic. Like, they just, like, alternated. 
And there's like ambulance type of service that would come pick up the ladies that need to go. And they, so they're like, I'm taking you to hospital number one. And if they're going to take them to clinic number one, people started to just beg not to go there. Like they got out and had their baby on the side of the road. They literally did because they were like, I don't want to die. I don't want to go to this place. Please take me to the other one. And if they wouldn't, yeah, they had them on the street. And Semmelweis even notes in his notes that patients that were having these on the street births tended to still fare better on average than people that went to hospital number one. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, I guess it's the right choice to have your baby in the street. <laughs> um, so, of course, he wants to know what's going on. Right. Um, what are the midwives doing the doctors aren't or the doctors that the midwives aren't? Um, so he started observing the birth process between the two facilities. And he his first difference that he notices, obviously, the midwives are laying the ladies on their side. To push and have their baby. And the doctors are making them go on their back and put their feet in the stirrups. So maybe that's it. So he tried to make that change and it didn't help with, you know, the rate of peripheral fever. So next he thought the women in clinic number one were being scared to death. Mm. I mean, sure. Okay. So when someone died there, a priest would walk through the halls ringing a bell saying a prayer for the dead woman. And the women that were there laboring could hear this and hear the prayer for the dead woman. And they knew someone just died giving birth. And he is like, that's scary. Maybe that's a bad idea. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, he's like, you're just so scared that you'll die. Right. Of fever. Um, he told the priest to go into different hallways and not ring his bell anymore. But that didn't help. Hmm. I bet it helped mentally. Yeah. I bet it did help, but it didn't help the purple fever thing. So at this point in the story, unfortunately, one of Semmelweis's friends dies. He was a pathologist and a professor. um, And so this professor, he was doing an autopsy. And during the autopsy, a student, a med student, accidentally nicks him with the knife that they were using to do the autopsy with. Um, and, And then this friend, he goes on to develop... Symptoms that seemed identical to purpural fever. And that's when Semmelweis finally gets it. And he goes, I know what's going on here. These There are cadaverous particles, is what he called them, on the knife. Okay. And that transferred the cadaverous particles to my friend and he died. So what if these cadaverous particles were somehow also being spread to the women? Right. Um... It sounds directly like he thought of germs, but he still thought it was like bad air coming from the particles. But whatever. I, I, I get it. A mode of transport, though, is is being discovered. Yes. So he notes in the first clinic, we've got the doctors and students that do autopsies and then they deliver babies. And we'll not forget the time period here because in time period, doctors come straight from the autopsy, covered with blood and bodily fluids on their hands, on their clothes, and they don't even wash their hands because... First of all, it makes them look cool and like they're working really hard. And second, they didn't see why they should have to. Right. So they would come from the autopsy and go deliver the baby. In the second clinic, there's obviously no autopsies being done. No. So some of us thought this this is it. Okay. So in 1847, he makes a new rule for the clinics, both clinics. You have to wash your hands. And after he did that, the rate of death from purple fever um, in two months dropped to zero. Wow. Yeah. So I'm going to admit something here that this isn't about soap because they didn't use soap. (laughs) (laughs) It was close. Um, But they didn't just use water. They used uh, diluted chlorine. Okay. 
So sterilization. Hopefully heavily diluted chlorine because no one complained of their hands being burned off. Yeah. Um, but still probably not the best thing to use for your hands. Anyways, I know this is a soap podcast, but it's about washing your hands, okay? Okay. <laughs> um, so at this point, it's like working super great. Let's also clean our surgical instruments and other things that touch patients with this chlorine stuff. This is great. And other doctors in Europe started hearing about this and was like, oh my God, this is groundbreaking. This is amazing. Yeah. But there's a problem in which Semmelweis hated public speaking and traveling and publishing papers, especially because Mm. he didn't do it. Yeah. So he didn't go to speak at the conferences or events he was invited to. He would send someone in his place. It was never him defending his work. He never published his work. So the actual numbers and stuff never got out. And... So eventually people just started to dismiss him. Sure. And it was almost because it was proposed and not defended, it became like they were almost mad at the idea. Um, so a quote I read is that just because someone figures out a new truth, especially a scientific truth, doesn't mean that everyone else is ready to hear that truth. Yeah. <laughs> so the common thinking now is it was kind of an ego defense thing. Like if doctors accepted what he was saying, they would have to accept that they had been killing people for a long time. Right. And that was a huge, like, no, we're trying to do good. We're trying to help people. I like can't have it. And how dare you say I'm unclean. I am a doctor. How dare you? So, you know, it, um, not only didn't go well, it ended up going, you know, completely off the rails. Like Semmelweis got fired from the clinic uh, he eventually published his work, but it was far too late because everyone had already made up their mind. Yeah. Um, he had a mental breakdown and was committed to a psychiatric facility. And while he was there, the guards beat him so badly, he got blood poisoning and died. Great. So, yeah. he Yeah. So the we kind of celebrate him in this day because we know he didn't really get his, his due and the end. But... Not end because we didn't start washing our hands at this point because clearly he was a kook who didn't know what he was talking about. So it took maybe another 50-ish years when Pasteur started doing his work and germ theory started to become widespread and Lister started mm-hmm. doing antiseptic techniques in surgery. Um, so like late, late 1800s, early 1900s before we really started washing our hands. So that was a good 50 years of you know time we could have had to save people's lives Yeah, that we did not. Um, so there's actually something called, that has been named the Semmelweis reflex, where people tend to be very resistant, almost instinctually, to new ideas, especially new scientific ideas that challenge deeply held societal or cultural norms. That is the Semmelweis reflex now, named after, <laughs> something named after him. Um, I just wanted to mention, during the 1918 flu pandemic, there was government messaging, just like our pandemic, about washing your hands. There was what I can only presume was a very loud minority of men. I'm just oh. going to, I'm just going to throw this out there. Just men who refused to do that because washing your hands was girly and feminine. Oh, Oh yes. It wasn't. No. And they said that they are strong men. They're strong enough to fight a germ because they're so manly, which really harkens back to our COVID. I have an immune system crowd. Hmm. I have an immune system. I will fight it myself kind of thing. Anyways, it just, it happens every pandemic and hand washing is also like always a struggle. Um, so my last thing, I told you I was going to talk about that lamb thing. Okay. Let's do it. Okay. So in 1984, 
a tabloid war breaks out between France and Britain. Okay. So initially, the problem was that lamb important for Britain, like into France, was starting to undercut the price of local French lamb. Yeah, that's problematic. So the French farming lobby is vocally upset about this. And then it escalated to this news article I found, quote, The trouble flared Wednesday when irate French farmers protesting cheap imported meat hijacked two truckloads of British lamb on a highway near Rouen, Normandy. Wow. The Frenchmen unloaded the trucks and distributed the meat to hospitals and old folks in the area while they held the drivers captive to French hospitality. <laughs> Later, a third British truck was stopped and meat taken out and burned. Ooh. The headline of the British tabloid The Sun read, La Ambush. <laughs> I like that I'm one. I'm saying it really British-wise. Yeah. Um, and they invited the readers to write in to the paper for badges saying, Hop off, you frogs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Daily Mail's headline was, Arrest These Meat Pirates. Um, British public opinion was incensed by the reports that the police were quickly on scene, but then did nothing to prevent the hijacking. Um, okay, so back to the sun again, because this tabloid's really what's the, like in setting this all of this. off. Yeah. yeah. They are the ones that declared this a lamb war, and they said that they were going to invade France. Hmm. Okay. The paper sent an army to Calais. Wow. Of reporters? Of pin-up centerfold girls from the tabloid. You know how, like, the sun used to have, like, those hot girls? They sent sent those girls um, in some skimpy Union Jack clothing and some tin helmets. Yeah. Yeah. Seems like a really effective army. They had them invade Calais, sing It's a Long Way to Tipperary, and plant the Union Jack and leave. Good invasion. I'm surprised that one's not more common in <laughs> but, history. But just, this wasn't specifically a, like, French-British thing. Okay. Okay. Meat trucks from Holland and Denmark had also been stopped and robbed. This was just a French farmers were mad thing. Yeah. Um, French agriculture was getting very low subsidy. French, there's mad their government. If there's one thing the French know how to do well, I mean, there's other things, but if there's one thing, it's probably protesting. Sure. Right? They do it, they do it, and they do it well. So, at this point in the story is probably when you're starting to wonder, like, seriously, if I forgot that this was a podcast about soap. Um, I was wondering. I know. You're probably worried about my mental state right now, but um, maybe you're just frantically trying to decipher what the connection between soap and France and Britain's historical squabbling is, but you'll never guess it. Okay. The connection is the sun again, because that yep. tabloid paper just is endlessly entertaining. Um, why did you look at me in the... Because I'm going to... Uh, I want to guess that maybe some tabloids go back and forth, and then the British um, accuse the French of not using soap. Um, there, there's no back and forth about oh, it. okay. Just the sun wants to escalate it. This is selling papers, right? Yeah. So um, the sun's editor is named was named Calvin McKenzie, and he reads a report saying France consumes less soap than any other country in Europe every year. Without considering what the reason behind this might be, he insists they run a slam piece so that all of Europe can know how dirty the French were. Um, So the Sun article wrote, quote, the French are the filthiest people in Europe. And, quote, many French people smell like kangaroos, which have been kept in cages. What? I know that not necessarily all the same letters, but it's a good alliteration. Yeah, so 
Then they send one of the pinup model cover ladies uh, to the French embassy to deliver a package of toiletries and clean underwear as, quote, British aid to the needy nation. <laughs> so, That's entertaining. Um, but I actually found out when I was researching this story that the rumor that French people are not the cleanest goes back to before World War II. Um, at that time, Paris, which is not unusual in Europe, by the way, yeah. had little indoor plumbing. You didn't have a lot of indoor yeah. plumbing facilities, okay? You didn't have your own tub unless you're really fancy. So you'd go to the public um, bathhouses, right? Public bathing facilities. Anyways, that's just kind of, it, it got started back then and someone pulled this thread. It was really this incident that made smelly Frenchmen like a trope in sure. in Europe. But um, the sun, yeah, so they thought they found this like historically backed rumor that they were going to spread and just like make worse. Uh, stinky Frenchmen. But in reality, what really happened was that the French are, were the earliest adopters of like widespread adopters of body wash. Um, if they use the most body wash in Europe, I'm the least. So, uh, French people, according to surveys, actually shower more than British people, but they had less baths mm. because they didn't want to sit in dirty bath water like the dirty British people, which is how they tried to get back at them. But this kind of fizzled out. Mm, fair enough. Um, so my conclusion yes. to the soap podcast is that people still really suck at using soap. Or like to or be, to be fair, you're right. Don't maybe don't always have the opportunities. According to UNICEF, if every cook used soap, it would cut the world's rate of respiratory infections by twenty five percent, and diarrheal diseases by fifty percent. Wow, gross. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Gross. How many how many chefs don't use soap? Gross. Um, that, they estimate, would save over a million lives a year. Uh, according to the U.S. CDC, doctors wash their hands half as frequently as they should. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, we've got some things as a society to work on, and I hope that if there's any good things that come from the pandemic, everyone washing our hands with soap more will help. Make sure you use that lotion. And soap may be the most important medical invention of all time. Sure. It's tough to know. Yeah. Uh, so I want to thank everyone one more time for listening to us blab on and on about Yes, soap. thank you. Uh, we have an email address if you want to reach us with any questions or corrections or suggestions for future episodes. It is teach me something for, like the numeral for, not the word, at gmail.com. Um, so once again, I am Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new. Bye.